0: You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Ginger Gorman is an award-winning print and radio journalist. She's tenacious, talented and thorough, so it should have surprised no one that after dealing with a deluge of online hate in 2013, that her curiosity was piqued. What followed was rigorous research that led her into some very dark and disturbing parts of the internet and some confronting facts about the real-life implications of online hate. The resulting book is called Troll Hunting, Inside the World of Online Hate and Its Human Fallout. Hi, Ginger. How are you? Lovely to see you, Sean. Why were you curious about trolling? Didn't you want to just stay as far away from it as possible?
1: Look, I won't lie. When my family and I became subject to an orchestrated online hate campaign in 2010 and we got death threats, I was terrified. And so was my husband. And, you know, I did really have this moment of thinking, did I just put my kids' lives at risk because of my job as a journalist. But once that died down, probably about a year or 18 months later, I really just started to wonder, you know, why would you send someone you don't know a death threat? And at the same time as that was happening, I was still working at the ABC, and a lot of my ABC colleagues, particularly women, were getting these absolutely vile threats, like rape threats, death threats, beheaded women in their inboxes, like just disgusting. And some of them were afraid to go home. Similar stuff was happening uh, to people I knew in the States. And I just wondered who those guys were, you know, like what was motivating them. But I did not know what I was walking into. And you know, Even when I went to write the book, so I had been covering cyber hate for a couple of years and I had been talking to trolls for a couple of years. I had no idea how dangerous they were, the guys I was going to meet. Like these guys in my book... They're responsible for murder and terrorism and they incite people to suicide and they are responsible for real-life stalking. So there's all kinds of crimes that these predator trolls, so that's really extreme trolls who do real-life harm, are doing. And I did not understand that. Like there's a real psychopath in my book, Mark. (laughs) And, I mean, I just went to meet him with a tape recorder the first time in a cafe I didn't realise that he was responsible for getting people killed. So, yeah, it was so naive in retrospect. But I suppose no one had looked at it before in this way, so I didn't know. But now, I mean, it makes my heart jump into my throat because I didn't even tell anyone where I was. I didn't put it into my diary or anything, so it wasn't like I was safe.
0: Yeah, which is incredible because you are a mum of two young children. Just taking a step back from the actual content um, you're a, you were a freelance journalist at the point where you decided to write the book, um, but it is a book that you would have known before you started would require lots of research and a lot of time. Was Is writing a book in this way good for family life or challenging just in terms of time?
1: No, and I mean, look, aside from anything else, my husband said to me, please don't, please don't do this. Like, just leave it alone, you know. You know, Siobhan... Maybe it was bloody-minded, but I didn't really feel like I had a choice. I knew it would be psychologically hard and time-wise it would be very hard. And, you know, my eight-year-old said to me the other day, I'm sick of your book and I'm sick of frozen pizza. (laughs) And, I mean, that is the extent of it, right? Like I was uh, working 70 hours a week, 16 hours a day. I did still take them to school, but I'd be writing all night and – I think that, you know, the parents at the school thought I was jobless and maybe even homeless because I would turn up <laughs> without any I, – I turned up in the pyjamas I had been riding in for almost 24 hours and I was actually quite alcoholic by the end of it, which is in the book, the kind of unravelling of my mental health, and I had alcohol and coffee on me and, you know, I really was a mess. You weren't reported so, to docs in I'm that not, time? <laughs> no, I'm not recommending it as a parenting <laughs> strategy. But I do hope that my kids understand – that in a way I did it for them. Like I don't want my children to grow up in a world where people are getting harmed and killed because of what happens on the internet. That absolutely terrifies me. And I I don't want anyone to be in that world now or in the future. So, no, it was incredibly hard on my family and my marriage and I don't recommend it, (laughs) but I'm... Proud of the book, even though it was so hard. I mean, it it's did, so like, let's be clear, like, I had really bad PTSD and depression by the end of it just because it was so violent and so dark. And I had to do a really specialized course of therapy for trauma and journalism uh, in order to be able to face the media and talk to the public which I wanted to because the whole idea is to make the internet safer. But it's not, I would never do it again like that.
0: No. Going back to what you said about um, how you went in, you were quite naive about how dangerous these people were. I would suspect that most people listening don't really understand that because they're probably in the same place that you were.
1: That's right. And to be fair, the police don't understand it. I don't think even the social media companies have a handle on either. Like internationally, police do not understand this. They are focused on terrestrial crime and so if you are for example a domestic violence target and you go down to the police station and your ex-partner is predator trolling you and your life is at risk can you say I'm being trolled they will say stay off the internet love they don't understand how sophisticated and how dangerous this stuff is and so I mean I know now that the New Zealand police and Australian police are using my book to guide their future responses to cyber hate and I'm glad because when I gave Uh, evidence to the Australian Senate hearings into cyberbullying last year and I said you know this is linked to terrorism and this is linked to domestic violence I could see them looking at me like you're out of your mind at that point I mean that was well before the Christchurch massacre happened so that guy was a predator troll he was involved in a lot of those uh, groups on 4chan and 8chan like those real white supremacist kind of groups and a lot of them are now it's becoming clearer and people are starting to wrap their heads around it, that it's not just people being mean online and pull your big girl panties up, that actually this stuff, at its very extreme end can be very serious. But look, you know, I mean, trolling can be really funny too. Like it's a spectrum of behaviour and I would never even say that trolling shouldn't exist because a lot of it has a political purpose or a social purpose. And some of it is actually quite hilarious. Like, do you know what a Rickroll is? Oh yes. You know, yeah. like it's a really famous, very old type of trolling where you think you're going to click on a link of something probably very serious and you're in the middle of your research doing something, and then you end up clicking on Rick Astley's song, Never Gonna Give You Up. (laughs) You know, like that kind of trolling is amusing and funny and uh, has a purpose, you know. So there is, it's a spectrum of behaviour and I'm really talking about the extreme end, but that's, you know, as a society, we haven't got a handle on it and the police need to wake up and pay attention. And also, you know, the social media companies are absolutely uh, complicit in this stuff They make billions of dollars from our data. They pay no tax at all. And they are essentially nation states. They've got more users than China and India put together, the populations of those things. And they are not stopping this because basically it doesn't suit their revenue model. So if there's a cyber hate event and everyone piles onto their platforms, they make more money. So at the moment, there's not an impetus for them to stop it. God, that's crazy. And it's frightening as a parent, I think, because, you you know, you can – you can go onto Facebook when you're 13, So that's, but lots of kids do it younger, and I don't think most parents or kids, for that matter, have any idea what that means, you know, or what that represents.
0: You have a chapter in your book about children who say they were basically parented by the yeah. internet, or what you found. Can you tell us about that scenario? I found that fascinating.
1: Yeah, so look, I mean, this isn't a book about the internet, it's a book about people, And that's why I wanted to go into these areas. I formed very, very close and enduring relationships with some of these guys, despite the fact that I was essentially the hate match, right? So I am of a Jewish background. I am a white woman. They hate white women. They hate journalists. I'm a journalist. I'm in a mixed-race marriage. They hate that too, Uh, And I'm into social justice and they hate that, that they call them SJW. So I like, I'm all the things. So if it was a dating app, I would be their hate (laughs) match, right? So, uh, but bizarrely, they wanted to talk to me. And I think the reason, there are two reasons they wanted to talk to me at such deep levels. One is because I was listening and they feel really marginalized, these guys, which is hard to wrap my head around, right? They're young white guys, but they feel sort of cast aside by society. And the other thing is trolling is a culture. So it's a, it's a culture. They're in syndicates, almost like bikie gangs. They have presidents, vice presidents, all this stuff, and it's a complicated culture. So they wanted that written down. But during these deep relationships, I got into very uh, deep topics with them and hard topics. And this stuff came up over and over again. And it was this kind of scenario where they almost universally said, sometime between the ages of 10 and 13, maybe 16 was the eldest I came across, they were left alone online and parented by the internet. So no adults there at all. And these young kids are sitting there on the cesspits of the internet. So 4chan, Reddit, Tumblr, 8chan, these kind of platforms. And they are imbibing misogyny, white supremacy, all these other kinds of hatred, ableism, and essentially learning that 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 is what society is and identifying with that and so you know I don't think we can be surprised then that like a few years later they get spat out as violent internet trolls and you know with the Christchurch killer for example so that happened six weeks after my book came out that massacre and it was devastating because that was the kind of thing I was trying to stop I was waiting after that happened for somebody to say he was alone on the internet and his grandma came out and said he didn't really have any friends. He was always alone online. And I was like, of course he was, you know? So this is a parenting story really is what I came to. I had this moment where it sort of rained down on my head and I realized Nobody's kissing and cuddling these kids like I do with my kids. Nobody's explaining to them how life works or helping them get through their social interactions or their schooling or, you know, teaching them the things that we teach children. So it's actually... uh, all of our problem like these are all of our kids these are our kids in our community and not only do we want them to grow into lovely caring productive adults but we don't want them to do us harm like this so it, i think it's urgent you know it's an urgent intervention point do you feel like
0: you're being heard now you mentioned that you've given evidence and um you sorry i forgot what. Trial was was, Uh, at
1: the so yeah last year there were Senate hearings in cyberbullying yeah so you yeah so
0: people are calling on you for your information um it was it is a groundbreaking book do you feel like it's starting to change like are people hearing you
1: look when the massacre happened the Christchurch massacre I was so devastated because I had been to Facebook about a year earlier when I was writing the book and I said to them, Facebook Live is not safe because there are really similar products and people are getting uh, murdered and raped on those platforms and this platform isn't any different. And they said, yes, it is, you know. Um, And when the massacre happened, I was so devastated because I felt like the book didn't come out soon enough almost. And then, I mean, I got this email from a woman in the book. Her name is Dr. Heidi Barak, and she's from the Southern Poverty Law Center in the States. And she tracks extreme hatred. And she said to me, you know, Ginger, like, I'm sure you're devastated, but now is not the moment to hide in bed with the covers over your head. You have to stand up and speak because now's the moment people will listen and you'll get the change that you want. And that is actually what's happened. So I went to New Zealand right after the massacre. I was explaining the context of the Christchurch killer. I was mobbed by the media. And in that week after the massacre here in Australia, you know, I heard Bill Shorten, Mitch Firefield, Angus Taylor, all these Australian politicians were actually parroting the phrases i've been using in all my talks and people were texting me going dude they're plagiarizing you dude <laughs> and you know first of all i was like oh damn like they're plagiarizing me and then i actually thought good you know like this phrase i keep saying that the norms that have to apply offline and need to apply online i was hearing this over and over again then in the dialogue and i i'm happy about that i i we're yet to see the scale of change I would like, but I have just sent the book to Jacinta Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister, because she is putting a lot of pressure on the social media companies. And, you know, people kept writing to me, saying, so you got to send this to Jacinta. And I, I thought it was a, that was a bit up myself, actually. But um, <laughs> finally, someone who helped organise her visit to Australia sent me all the email addresses and said, no, you need to. And her office seemed really happy to receive it. So I really hope that somebody like her I feel like maybe she's the person to do it because she's been at the forefront of this she's been speaking out loudly and with passion to the social media company so hopefully there's almost like a critical mass now and you know I think uh, the public is really getting it like parents are the ones always writing to me saying I'm scared about my kids what do we do like they're starting to realise the danger. You know, like kids are dying by suicide and things like that. Lots of children are being really bullied to extreme lengths online. The public's getting it. It's taken a long time though. Yeah, I feel like it is. It's almost been like a black spot. Yeah,
0: I, I, and I was wondering um, whether you think part of – the problem is our generation. Um, I'm going to assume you're Gen X. Like I am. <laughs> um, and even to a degree, millennial parents that have grown up with the internet in the fact that we've come to it without being overly critical. So the internet came into our life in a way where everyone saw it as an opportunity. It was like the gold right. rush. There were no, the, the idea of privacy, you were kind of a, a Luddite if you said you wanted privacy. This is not the way of the world now. Um are we part of the problem because we've always had that mindset and now we can see, oh, it's not some ephemeral thing that is just all, you know, finding information right when you need it and everything's lovely and easy? That,
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's one thing. There's a few things. The first thing is, yes, we all s- saw it as an opportunity. And to be fair, like... I heard one of the fathers of the internet, Vince, uh, speak at the ANU. And so he's the guy that cre- helped create the ARPANET, which is the forerunner to the current modern-day internet. And, you know, he and his cohort, men and women, they really saw it as a huge potential for humanity to connect us all and give us all a voice. And that's the way it was sold. And I mean, I remember being connected to the internet for the first time. It was incredibly exciting and it has connected us in many ways and given us many economic opportunities and other things. There was still was always an idea that it was virtual, that it's some sort of fairyland and it's not real life. And the, that is a ludicrous kind of idea that we have held on to. Like if I order my groceries online, they come in real life. If I apply for a job in online, I can get that job in real life. So this sort of disconnect we have, like when I was talking about going to the police station and saying I'm being attacked online, there's an idea that it's not real life. But if somebody said to me, you know, I'm going to kill your kids and cut your uterus out in the supermarket, that should, which they wouldn't, right? (laughs) No, they wouldn't. But, But it is just as dangerous in the supermarket as real life. But in the supermarket, the police would come. On the internet, they probably wouldn't. So, but the dangers are just as real. And my book proves that. So... Yeah, there's that kind of disconnect. The other thing is I really do think it was like domestic violence was 30 years ago that, uh, you know, a lot of times women are attacked at greater rates than men. And a lot of times, so 44% of Australian adult women have experienced online harassment and it's 34% of men, but against women, the harassment is more violent and sustained and sexual. So that's the research that I commissioned from the Australia Institute for my book. So I think... Oftentimes it's seen as women whining, it's a private matter, police don't really know the law, they don't really know the legislation and they're confused about it and they're not resourced or trained to deal with it. And so there's a kind of almost um, situation where you've got all these aspects coming together to mean that we haven't really paid the attention to it that we should have our great hope for the internet and our belief and its helpfulness has meant we've really put blinkers on and haven't paid attention to this. And now, I mean, I want to reclaim the internet for the good of humanity. I don't think – I think it's a, a tragedy if we lose that potential. And we give it up because it's so helpful. Like it's so helpful in so many aspects of our life and we need it. Like the United Nations has just recognized internet access as a human right. So, Actually, it's not just that we like to have it and we can get offline if we want to. There's this kind of thing that people say and the police say is if you don't like it, just get off the internet. I mean, who realistically could get off the internet? We use it for economic reasons. We use it for social reasons. We use it for research. We use it for our banking. I mean, we use it for everything. So it's really more like, what are we going to do to fix it? And are we really willing to let this incredible resource slip through our fingers and become a cesspit of hatred where people get harmed? And I mean, I go back to social media companies. I just can't. I mean, I'm gobsmacked as to why we're not calling them to account as a community. Like, can you imagine if a car company put cars on the roads without seatbelts and people were getting killed? Would we all just sit by and go, no worries. That's a bit sad. That happens online sometimes. You know, we wouldn't. That happens on the road sometimes. No, we have a huge campaign to stop it. We have better laws. We have better law enforcement. We have better education. We make the products safer. Like, we do all the things to make sure we can still drive on the roads and it's safe. So that's what we need to do with the internet, you know.
0: Oh, well, um, Ginger, (laughs) your book is definitely the start of something big, I hope. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. That's journalist and author Ginger Gorman. Her book is called Troll Hunting Inside the World of Online Hate and Its Human Fallout. You'll find links on where you can get a copy in the notes of this episode. We're trying something new on Helpline while Mothercraft nurse Chris Minogue's away we're focusing on
1: relationships. It might be important for this particular mum to put themselves in their friend's shoes just for a moment to acknowledge that they might be grieving the loss of a friendship and that they really are feeling a deep sense of of loss and grief over this because they probably have invested a lot of time in it. And perhaps that's the same for the mum in question as well, that they're grieving the loss or the change of a friendship
0: dynamic. That's Kirsty Levin, a counsellor with The Parents' Village. She's an expert at dealing with how relationships change after children, from friends to partners to parents and in-laws. If you'd like to ask a question, send it to helpline at parentbrand.com.au. This podcast is produced by Debbie Ning, and I'm your host, Siobhan Hunt.